Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to chapter 1. I'm fiddling. There we go. I'm getting my PowerPoint set up here. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So Peter's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Writing this for our edification and helping us to worship the Lord. And he writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Man, there's a lot in these verses. I mean, it's like a string of pearls where Peter just adds one incredible phrase upon another, setting forth the glory of God in saving us and in sanctifying us. So as we work through this passage, again, there's a lot in here. But the, the summary of what I think he's saying in verse 3 and 4 is just laying out God's sanctifying provisions for His people. So that's kind of the big idea, I think, of what uh, he's going to do in these verses. Let me give you kind of an overview of chapter 1. So he starts out in verse 3 and 4, again, God's sanctifying provisions. Then in verse 5-11, through 11, he, he stresses the importance on diligently pursuing spiritual growth. So it's important for us to be pursuing it with diligence to grow in godliness and spiritually. And then in verses 12-21, through 21, he talks about the authority behind these exhortations and for spiritual growth, and that is their own eyewitnesses and and the prophecy of the Word of God becomes the authority. So that's kind of where he's heading. So in chapter 2, he gets into the false prophets, false teachers, but he wants to build into the church before they start considering that so that they're moving in a godly direction. They're moving in a right direction in their own personal growth with Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where we're at. So let's kind of launch into this. So I'm going to start again with verse 2. Notice this is kind of Peter's opening benediction. His opening prayer, if you will, for the church. And he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, some of your translations don't have the connecting phrase, seeing that. 
It just says, verse 3 just starts with His divine power. And those translations actually leave a Greek word untranslated. That's why they just start out in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us. But there's actually a Greek word in there that some of the translations, the New American Standard does translate as seeing that. So in other words, verse 3 is connected back to verse 2. And I think the connection is this. In verse 2, Peter is just prayed that God would multiply grace and peace in your life. And verse 3 is going to tell us basically how He's going to do it and the confidence that we should have that He will do it. He's going to do it through His power in granting us life and godliness. He's going to do it through giving us His precious promises in verse 4. And that's why we can know that He's going to multiply grace and peace in our life. And that's a very encouraging thing. So that's how this is going to connect back with verse 2. That this is the reason why Peter can pray with confidence that God will multiply grace and peace because His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now it's interesting, and in, uh, when Peter wrote this, usually the word order indicates emphasis and stress. What he, what he wants to put the light on initially. And he does that by taking the word everything and moving it to the very first word in this sentence after the connecting word seeing that. So in other words, is everything that you need for life and godliness, God's power has granted it to you. Everything that you need. And that's why grace and mercy is going to be supplied because God doesn't stop that when He saves us. It's an ongoing process in the Christian life. So basically, by putting the word everything forward in the sentence, He's stressing emphatically the full provision that God has made in our sanctification. Now notice the two words life and godliness here. That God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to number one, life. That would be spiritual life, eternal life, salvation, and secondly, godliness. So that's the living out the Christian life. The process of sanctification. Our devotion to God. Our consecration. That God's power has granted us everything pertaining to salvation and our sanctification. In essence, is what he's saying. And Christ has given us all things to bring that about. And Paul emphasizes this, for example, in Romans 8. But God has predestined us. He has justified us. He's sanctifying us. He'll glorify us. And all of that is a part of His plan. And it's accomplished ultimately by His power. His divine power. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1.6 that He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God is, in, God is behind our salvation. He's behind our growth in godliness. It all comes from His power. From His divine power. 
Now you may wonder, why does Peter refer to this as the divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness? Why not divine grace or divine mercy, which would certainly be fitting as well? But why power? And I think he's emphasizing that, the idea of power, because of our spiritual condition before we were saved. That we need power to give us life. We need God's power to give us godliness. Because of the depth of our own depravity, the depth of our own spiritual deadness that we were in before the Lord saved us. Now we need grace and mercy, we need all that, but we need power to bring about our salvation because we were spiritually dead. And we cannot raise ourselves. We cannot change our heart. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were spiritually blind. We do not seek after God by nature. We cannot come to Christ. We will not come to Christ. We cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. We are spiritually dead in a coffin of sin. And we cannot even respond to the Gospel when it's preached to us. So that's why we need divine power. We need God's power to come in and spiritually resurrect our spiritually dead souls so that we become alive and suddenly become alive to our sin, alive to why we need Christ, and we call upon Him for salvation. That is the result of divine power. In fact, the Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, in Ephesians 1, we won't go there, but he connects our spiritually being made alive with the very same power that raised Jesus physically from the dead. So when God raised us spiritually from the dead, it was the same power that He used to resurrect Christ bodily from the dead. Your salvation is the result of divine power because of the dead condition that we were in. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot resurrect ourselves. It requires divine power. And that's why I think Peter emphasizes that. In verse 1, he's already told us that faith is a gift of God. And so he's just elaborating on the need for divine power. Notice, however, in this verse also that that divine power has brought to you life, spiritual life, faith, repentance, eternal life, but also godliness. So that every believer must reflect a level of godliness. Not just life, but life and godliness. If you're truly alive spiritually, if you're alive in Christ, then godliness will flow out of that. This is far more than just a mere profession of faith. Where you raise a hand or walk an aisle or something like that. In other words, if there's no evidence of godliness, there is no evidence of life. If someone claims to be a Christian, but their life is just covered with sin, unrepentant sin, 
then there's no evidence that they have life. The life produces the godliness. That's why they're connected here. The life comes first. You have to be born again. You have to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. You have to be made spiritually alive. And if you are, then there will be godliness manifested in your life. There has to be some level of transformation. Now this doesn't mean that we cannot fall into sin. David fell. Others fall. But grace is there to catch us. To grant us repentance so we can be restored back into fellowship with the Lord. So he's not talking about perfection. He's not talking about sinlessness. But there must be a level of godliness. A desire to obey the Lord. A desire to to seek the Lord. To honor the Lord. To please the Lord. If there's none of that in there, then you don't have life. Or you need to repent. If you're a believer, you need to repent and get back in, in line with the Lord. So, Peter has emphasized at the outset that God's going to give grace and peace to His people because His power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then look at the next phrase. He's stringing these pearls together. He says that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. This word for true knowledge is the same word that he's used up in verse 2. Peter loves the word for knowledge. said last week he uses this, uh, this set of words different forms about 16 times in this letter. And there's a distinction between two words for knowledge. One is gnosis. The other is epinosis. Gnosis always emphasizes the understanding of truth. The cognitive ability to comprehend truth. Intellectual truth. Which is vital in the Christian life. You must have knowledge. And you must understand the gospel and these various truths. But when he puts a little preposition epi on front of that word, epi-knowledge or epinosis, then that brings the idea of a a full knowledge, a, a richer level of knowledge. In other words, it moves just from me understanding it to the practical outworking of it in my life. So that the knowledge, the theology produces doxology. It produces praise and obedience and worship of God. That's epinosis. And that's the word here for true knowledge. So God by His power has given every believer everything they need for life and godliness. And that's mediated to us through the true knowledge of Him. The true knowledge of God. And here Peter again is just emphasizing the importance of true knowledge. You've got to know the facts, the elements, the truths, the, all the information about God in terms of the Gospel, in terms of what He's revealed to us. But it needs to be deeper than that. It needs to be more than that. It needs to be transformative knowledge. Not just lying up here just merely as theological truth, but that the theology again transforms us. That's the true knowledge 
that he's referring to. Jesus emphasized this himself in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. So the rock here is not only hearing the Word, knowing it, understanding it, but acting on it. That's the true knowledge that Peter's talking about. The contrast of those is everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. They heard it. It's in their head. I'm sure they understood it. They did not act upon it. And Peter is saying that everything you need for life and godliness comes through the true knowledge. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. So there's a danger of just intellectual knowledge. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. So true knowledge is knowledge, which we've got to have, which transforms and produces love and godliness in our life. And this challenges all of us to live out what we learn, to live what we know. And I guarantee you, I know far more than what I live out. Uh, if anyone needs to practice this, it's, it's he who stands before you. But that's the challenge that we have. We, we learn these tremendous truths and, and, and it's got to be something in our minds that we comprehend. But we've got to respond to it. If we don't respond to it, then it's just knowledge. It's gnosis. But we need epinosis. We need the transformation that comes from that knowledge. And that's what Peter's focusing on in this particular verse. But notice what he adds on now. He keeps on going. He says, So everything for life and godliness has been granted to us by His power through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and grace. So here's that word for call again. The Bible talks about two different calls. One's an external call. The other is an internal call. The external call is a call that you make, that preachers make, when we share the Gospel with, with an unbeliever, we call them to repentance and faith. That's the call that Jesus said when He said, many are called, but few are chosen. You can resist that call. You can say no to that call. You can say no thank you to that call. That's the external call that comes from men as we share the Gospel. But then there's another kind of calling. That's the internal call. That's what Peter has in view here. It's a call that comes from God Himself. It's a call that actually imparts life and grace that enables the sinner to respond to it in repentance and faith. This is the call that comes in power that again changes the very character of the heart. It's a call as by way of an illustration that Jesus made when He called Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth! And with that outward call came the power to resurrect His dead body 
So they stood up and walked out. That's the call of God. The same call of God when in Genesis 1, He said, let there be light. And the very spoken word brings about the reality of it. That's the power of God who calls us by His divine power and changed us that we might be able to repent and believe in Him. And then He adds to that, He called us by His own glory and excellence. His excellence is the perfections of His holy nature worthy of praise. The glory is the outward radiance, the the light, the manifestation of that excellence shining forth. So that when God called you to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He called you by putting His own glory and excellence on display. How so? Well, when He opened when He changed our heart and opened our eyes to see our need, we we see His glory and excellence manifested in the Gospel that speaks of God's love and grace and mercy for sinners, unworthy sinners just like us. That's manifesting His glory and His excellence, His attributes. But as the Gospel is being preached, we see His glory and excellence in, in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, His sinless Son who is fully God and fully man who came down from heaven and took to Himself a second nature, a human nature, and perfectly obeyed the law of God so He could die as our substitute. And He was willing to go and suffer the penalty for our sins. That's God's glory and excellence on display when He called us to faith in Him. We see His atoning death. We see it in His resurrection. We see it now that we come out of darkness into His light and suddenly we we understand something of God's glory and God's excellence in the Gospel as it's preached to us. So Peter is saying that he's confident that God will give you grace and peace and He'll multiply that Because His divine power has not only saved you and given you life, it's also provided everything you need for godliness as you grow in the true knowledge of this incredible God who sovereignly chose to call us out of darkness into His light. And in doing so, showed His glory and His excellence that He's willing to save sinners like you and me. So that's where we are so far. But then there's more in verse 4. And so we read, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. The by these probably refers back to God's glory and His excellence. So by God's glory and excellence, He's not only granted life and godliness, but He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. So when God calls us by His glory and excellence, He enables us to hear and act upon the promises. And what are those promises that Peter has in view here? Well, initially, the promises of the Gospel. 
The promise is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you repent and believe in Him, He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will give you the gift of everlasting life. He'll impute to your spiritual account the very righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. He has given us the promise that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. That He's always with us. That He's sovereignly working all things together for good to those who love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. And they just go on and on and on. So that by God's glory and His excellence, He has given us these promises that will transform our life. These promises are precious and magnificent. I love these two words together describing the promises of God. You know, some things are precious and not magnificent. And some things are magnificent, but not precious. For example, a a great big huge rock is magnificent. It's great. That's what this word mainly means. It's something very great and full of grandeur. But a great big huge rock is not precious. It's big, but it's not all that valuable. Some things are precious, but they're not magnificent. You can have a tiny little diamond. Well, it's precious. It's got value, but it's just, it's not magnificent. It's not huge. But the promises of God are both precious and magnificent. They are precious because they give to those who believe in them things that are precious. Like, again, the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. And these promises are precious because they were purchased for you and me by the precious blood of Jesus Christ that Peter refers to in 1 Peter 1.19. But these promises are also magnificent. They're great. They're huge because ultimately they are promising us things that transcend this universe. They transcend life on this earth. They are magnificent because the, the, the glory, the size, the incredible magnitude of forgiveness and eternal life again, far exceed anything this world knows about. So they're magnificent in the glory and the depth and the breadth of the blessings that they impart to us. Because ultimately, these promises will be fulfilled on the new heavens and the new earth, which transcends this old heaven and old earth. So they are both precious and they are magnificent because they encompass eternity. Not just temporal, not something you can lose, something that spans throughout eternity. And then the purpose of these promises that are precious and magnificent is that we might become two things. That we may become partakers of the divine nature. That's number one. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's number two. So there's two transformations that these promises bring about. 
The first one is that we become partakers of the divine nature. This does not mean we become little gods like some of these guys in the Word of Faith movement preach on TV. Uh, They interpret the word partake as if we actually partake in God's divine nature and essence so that we become gods. We become a God with God. That just doesn't make sense because I can partake of a birthday cake without becoming a birthday cake. So the the language doesn't fit. But certain people in the church today are so intoxicated on their own self-idolatry, their own authority and self-esteem, that they think that they're equal with Jesus Christ. I remember Kenneth Copeland one time, I don't know why I was watching him on TV, But he made the comment one time. Now remember, Jesus claimed to be I am. And in John 8.24, Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. That name Jesus took for Himself, I am, as you most of you know, goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses is at the burning bush. God is sending Moses to Egypt to rescue Israel. And Moses says, Wait a second, God, when I go back, they're going to ask me what your name is. So what is your name? So I can tell them what your name is. And God says to Moses, tell them that I am that I am has sent you. Tell them I am sends you. So I am is the specific personal name for God, Yahweh. And when Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, He's making a, a claim to deity. He's the eternal Son of God. Second person of the Holy Trinity. And if you don't believe that, you're going to die in your sins. And Kenneth Copeland said, if Jesus can say I am, I can say it too. Well, I've never actually picked up something and thrown it at my TV screen. But I was very tempted to do it because that's blasphemy. You're claiming to be equal with God. That's not what this is saying in verse 4. We become partakers of the divine nature, but we do not become God. We imitate God's character. We do not duplicate God's character. There's a huge difference there. We are conformed to Christ's moral image, not to His essential deity. Notice carefully 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's what Peter's talking about. But notice, in Christ you become a new what? Creature not a new creator. In other words, you don't become God. We're still a creature. Which means we're less than God. So those who claim this little God theology have have uh, certainly misinterpreted what the Word of God says on this particular point. What it means is we become partakers of the divine nature in the sense that we are born again. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We do have a new nature. We are new creatures in Christ. 
We become a new man with a new mind and a new heart. We are children of God. Christ now lives in us. And we're predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. But we never become divine. We become glorified, redeemed creatures throughout all eternity. We never become God. But what, a, what an incredible future we have to look forward to. The second thing that happens, the second transformation, has already happened and it continues to happen. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, Peter says. That's the second transformative impact of the promises of God. Found in the Gospel and in addition to those outside of just a specific Gospel message. But we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The word escape suggests escaping from a a deadly danger by God's gracious action. We've escaped. Not to our own praise, but to the praise of God who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But notice also the word corruption really is a word that speaks of decomposition, of the decaying flesh idea which describes the realm of the unbeliever. He, he lives in a state of corruption. His flesh just brings all this defilement and spiritual rot and decay into his life. We've escaped that. That corruption is found in the world. It's the world system that's alienated from God, that's hostile to God. And it's also a corruption that is because of our lusts. The very depraved nature of our old man refers to the lust of our falling flesh, which like a like a, a car engine just that continually emits this poisonous, deadly gas, carbon monoxide. Our flesh just continually is defiling and polluting us because of its love for sin and its desire to, to do what it wants to do. So in the, environment, in, the, in the environment of the world, our lusts thrive and just that's why we're a slave to sin. But God through His promises and by the grace of God that gave us life so we could hear the Word of the, of the Gospel and then respond and act upon the Word by repenting and believing, we are transformed. We become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Yes, we still wrestle with sin. Yes, we still wrestle with our lusts. But the dominating, controlling power has been broken though we still have many struggles and battles within the Christian life. So in summary, Peter is confident that God will sanctify us in the knowledge of God. That, that uh, initially in verse 2, that that grace and peace will be multiplied to us because God's power has given us all we need to grow in godliness. He has effectually called us through the Gospel. And He brings about our transformation by the promises of the Gospel and the promises 
of the Word of God. And when we by grace believe in those promises, we are transformed, we become partakers of the divine nature, and the enslaving, dominating reign of sin over us is broken. And all of this just emphasizes just how important that we live in and by the promises of God. The promises of the Gospel are something we should rejoice in every day. And all the other promises of the Word of God are just, they're there to change us. They're there to transform us, Peter's saying. And how vital it is for every believer to get these promises into our hearts and minds. And whenever we neglect spending time in the Word of God, whenever we neglect reviewing and rejoicing and meditating upon the promises found in Scripture, our spiritual growth will certainly be stunted. We will miss out on so many blessings and the fruit of the Spirit that that come to us through the promises of God. And our life becomes more miserable and more spiritually difficult and more stagnant when we neglect the promises of God. We need to learn to rejoice in them, learn them, memorize them, meditate upon them, believe in them, because it's through these precious and magnificent promises we are transformed. And woe to us when we neglect them. The promises of God still help us today to escape from the corruptions of this world by our lust that still has a toehold in our life, sometimes larger than a toehold. But the promises of God are still vital for us today. I reread recently in John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, the story of Christian and hopeful who find their path very difficult. They're on the narrow path that leads to the celestial city. And that path had become difficult and rough, making their feet hurt. So off to the side, they see another pathway that looks a lot easier than the one that they're on. And it seems to be going in the same direction. So they cross the stile and they begin to stray off going down this narrow way called, which leads to Bypath Meadow. And again, as they're going down this particular path, it suddenly becomes clear that it's far more dangerous. Someone who joined them actually fell into a pit once it got dark and died, and they realized this is not the path we need to be on. So they turned around and tried to go backwards. But nighttime came, storm came, rain, thunder, lightning. So they just decided we can't, we don't know where we're going, we don't want to fall in another pit. So let's just lie down. We'll sleep through it and in the morning we'll carry on our way. So they got up the next morning. Well, to their surprise, standing over them was giant despair. And giant despair arrested them, dragged them off, threw them in a deep, stinking dungeon and doubting castle. A nasty, foul dungeon. And he came in and was started starving them 
and beating them regularly. And there's no way they could escape. They're caught up in this doubting castle being beaten by giant despair. And the giant had tried to talk them into committing suicide because you're never going to escape. And I'm going to come back in a day or so and I'm going to end your miserable lives. I'm going to crush your skulls, he said. But So take your own life. Save me the effort and the trouble. So there's, they were hopeless. The night before the giant was going to come back and kill them, and here they've been beaten, they're covered with sores, suddenly Christian pops into his mind and he as something and he cries out, What a fool I am! Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. Well, I have a key in my bosom that will, I am persuaded, open any lock and doubting castle. And suddenly it dawned on him he's got a key. So he pulls the key out, he sticks it in the, the lock of the cell they're in, and it turns and it opens the door. They run outside, outside the dungeon and there's another iron gate that locks them into the castle. The key goes in that and opens it as well. And they're finally able to run and escape. And because you've read the book, I'm sure you have. If you haven't, you should. What was the name of that key? Promise. It was promise. And all that he suffered, all that he endured at the hands of giant despair, the pain, the misery, the beating, the starvation, was because he had forgotten his promise. He had forgotten the promise that God had given to him. And you and I so oftentimes find ourselves in the very same circumstance. Our spiritual life begins to drag. We start to become emaciated spiritually. We're not as obedient. We're not, we're not pursuing Christ like we should. Because like hopeful and Christian, we too oftentimes forget the promises of God because we've been neglecting them. We haven't been reading the Word of God as we should. And that promise becomes tucked away and out of sight, out of mind. And suddenly the the travail of the world comes upon us and the attacks of the enemy comes upon us and the despair comes upon us and we have no power to be transformed to rise above it because we've forgotten the promises of God. And what Peter is telling us, oh, don't. Don't go that way if you're in that. Come back to the Word of God. Come back and review your mind and the promises of God because they have the power to transform you, to make you more like Christ, and to deliver you from the corruption of our own lust that we battle every day. The promises of God, so precious, so magnificent, sadly, so neglected. And may God remind us through Peter's words of just how precious and magnificent these promises are and encourage us to make that step of disciplining ourselves to spend regular time in the Word of God so that the next time when we are tested and we're attacked, that the promises of God can come and fill our minds and give us the grace we need to overcome and be more like Christ. That's the power of the Word of God.
And I commend it to you for your blessing, your edification, and to help you to worship God and how vital the promises are to accomplish all of that. May the Lord draw us more into His promises. Let's close. Our Father God, we thank You for this string of pearls where Peter has laid out so many incredible truths and encouragement, Lord, that we can rely upon Your grace to give us more grace and peace because of Your divine power and because of Your promises and because of Your gifts of life and godliness that You've given to each one of us. And Lord, we all have our struggles. We all have our ups and downs. We all battle with sin. And how we need the transforming power of Your promises to encourage us, to give us the grace that we need to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy. So Lord, help us. Just give us a greater love for the Word of God. And may Your promises do their work in our hearts and lives to make us more like Christ, that He might be glorified by our lives. And we ask this in His name. Amen.